Hi, I'm Michael Sunoff, founder and CEO of HardToFindSeminars.com. For the last five years, I've interviewed the world's best business and marketing minds. Along the way, I've created a successful publishing business, all from home, from my two-car garage. When my first child was born, he was very sick, and it was then that I knew I had to have a business that I could operate from home. Now my challenge is to build the world's largest free resource for online downloadable MP3 audio business interviews. I knew I needed a site that contained strategies, solutions, and inside angles to help you live better, to save and make more money, to stay healthier, and to get more out of life. I've learned a lot in the last five years, and today I'm going to show you the skills you need to survive. Give me your best, most simplest definition for a layperson of what a joint venture is. I think the ideal of a joint venture is to understand a very important thing, and that is that we don't have money problems, we've got thinking problems. Hi, this is Michael Sinop with HardToFindSeminars.com. Here is a one-hour recording with one of the world's most foremost experts on joint ventures. He's been educating businesses on how to set up and establish and make money on joint ventures for over 20 years. It's a fascinating call where we cover a huge array of topics, situations, concerns, and most importantly, many success stories. And get ready. Enjoy. Now, a lot of people hear joint ventures. You've got Internet marketers all over the place talking about how great joint ventures is. And to a lot of people who have never heard this term, how would you characterize or give a definition to it in a layman's term for someone who has no experience with business? What is a joint venture? Well, a joint venture, essentially, Mike, is when people work together to achieve a common goal and share the resources that are currently available to them. We teach people to broker joint venture deals, so it might not be in their own business. In fact, they might not even have a business, but we show them how to link people up and get paid for that using existing resources. So is your focus more on showing people how to become like a middleman for setting up joint ventures or actually doing the joint ventures themselves if they have a business, or is there a difference? No, we actually do both because people in business often get stuck in terms of sales. They see how much money is coming into their business. What they don't realize is that it's not about sales, it's about net profit after tax. So they can use joint ventures in their own businesses to increase their sales, and they can also go back and increase extra revenues and profits into their lives from other businesses, which is often even more lucrative. We've heard of a real estate broker. What is a joint venture broker? So I think the, probably the best thing is to let me give you an example of what happened yesterday. Colin called me up. He's one of the people that is involved with us. And he said, you know, I was talking to a guy who has a very successful online membership of entrepreneurs. He's got 11,000 members. He's got three business magazines. And he's interested in talking with you. And that's all Colin did. He basically picked up the phone and called me, put the phone down, took it five minutes. Now, is Colin uh, one of your members of your joint venture inner circle club? Yeah, he's a member, but he doesn't own anything. He's just one of our members. And he called me up and he said, this is what can happen. So I called this fellow back, and in 25 minutes we agreed that he would advertise my products and services and business in all three of these glossy magazines on his website and to his 11,000 members on a contingency basis, which means that I would pay him for his 
any businesses came out of that. No cost or risk to me, no cost or risk to him. I then contacted Winston, who is a fellow that also works with us on websites. He's putting all the technology together. He's doing all the banners, the graphic art, everything else. And we put together a deal whereby all four of us, Colin, myself, Winston, and the other guy who owns all this resource, all these, these connections, all of us together are going to make money if something works. If it doesn't work, nobody loses anything. Everybody's happy. Let's look at the four players. You've got you involved. You're going to make money on the sales and the new customers for your, all your joint venture products through his list, right? That's right. He's going to make a piece of the action on those sales because it's his names and his list and his magazines, right? Right. And how's the web guy going to make money? Does he get a piece of it? Yeah, he's going to get a piece. So Winston, Colin, myself, and the other guy, all four of us are going to make money if anything happens. The original guy, Colin, that just picked up the phone and called me, took him five minutes. All the other work is getting done by other people and everything's being leveraged, so he just had to sit back and wait for the money to come in. So look, you've got Colin who did nothing but bring people together, so right. is the money split equal, or how do you decide who makes what? Well, we decide that between the four of us. We essentially look at what's fair in terms of input, how much work they put in, what do they own, how much do they deserve. So it depends on what people put in, it depends on, on what you negotiate, and everything is negotiable. I pay out up to 50% in commission because it's money I wouldn't have had, and on the back end, everybody can make money again. So in this deal, who would you characterize as the largest assets? I think I would have the largest assets because I own... But on the other hand, uh, Colin is making money for a phone call. The other guy is leveraging his existing database and building relationship with us. So everybody wins, and everybody is very happy with the deal. Well, a lot of people, I think, have a hard time figuring out what's fair and how much each person gets. So if the guy with 11,000 members, he's got the names, okay? Right. You've got the products. Colin was a bird dog, basically, and made an introduction, which, in my opinion, probably would have not as much clout as the name in the product, and then you get the website guy who's going to trade some of his time and labor. So how are you going to divvy this deal up if it works? Can you give a specific example for anyone who may be battling? Well, I don't have, I've actually got the money in front of me. On a $197 deal, the guy who owns the list would get $50. Um, the guy that's doing the website would get 35 Colin would get 15 and I would get 97 Oh, that's pretty good. Now, are you splitting up the gross sales or the net profits? Well, everything that we do is gross because we're selling online products and uh, membership is really no cost to us. When it comes to boot camp, I get a little bit more because that's a full-day seminar. But having said that, you know, like to put an extra guy into a boot camp doesn't cost me anything, really. An extra seat in the seminar. If you're a joint venture broker or if you're setting up joint ventures and you have to decide what the other person is going to get paid, is it smart to do it on gross versus net? And what are the advantages and disadvantages of each that you can think of? Well, that's a very good question. And a lot of people fudge the numbers when it comes to gross and net. How can they do that? Tell me. Give you another real life example. I had a guy that had a website business and he was giving me 20% of the gross of any business I brought him. So if he got paid 15000 I would get 20% of that $3,000. And that was working really well. And then one day he called me up and he said, you know what, I've got all these increased costs. Do you mind if I deduct my costs? And instead of taking the time to find out what he was talking about and what his costs were deemed to be, all of a sudden he said his costs were 50%. You know, cut me in half. So he basically said, do you mind if we change our agreement from gross to net? 
That's what he basically asked you. That's right. But up until then, everything has worked out. So it's very important because what the net really is and what people deem it to be depends on whether it's profit for new business or whether it's incremental business. A good example is a restaurant. The restaurant has a food cost percentage averaging in North America about 32%. If he's factoring in his overhead, his labor, his electricity, his hybrid, everything is factored in, then he's not making a lot of money. But if his restaurant is already running and his overhead is already being paid, and another guy walks into the restaurant during a meal and sits down and has a meal, his real food cost percentage which is 32%. So he's making 68% on that meal because he's not factoring in his incremental profit. His overhead has already been covered. The difference between that incremental profit where he's looking at his real cost or whether he's including his overhead or not, and that needs to be established up front. And you can be as sophisticated or, or as simple as you like. We had one person wanted to start factoring her cost from Visa and MasterCard, and <laughs> so she's getting a little bit cheap. So it depends to what extent you want to take it and what sort of relationship is in place when you go into that. Well, what do you teach in your boot camps? When a guy has two parties, okay, he's acting as a broker, he's got someone who's got product, and he's got someone who's got a list. He brings them together, and they're both willing partners. What do you train the broker how to set this up so all three parties have an understanding of exactly what's going to happen? Do you have agreement? contracts? Do you recommend not doing that because they can kill a deal? Do you recommend bringing an attorney in? Walk me through some of the best steps and strategies you've seen to make a deal go down rather than bust up. The most important part of all is relationships. That's why we started the Joint Venture Forum where we have a code of ethics. We've actually turned down 39 applicants and fired four members. So it depends, first of all, on the relationship. If you know the person really well and you've been doing business for a while, it's, it's not that necessary. If it's a new relationship, then you want to get it in writing, but we're not lawyers, so we can't give legal advice, and we don't get involved in contracts and non-disclosures and uh, memorandums of understanding. What we say, think logically how you can remove the cost and risk, and then think logically what is a fair deal for everybody, and how do we really understand what the profit is, how we will be paid, when we will be paid, you know, so that once everybody understands that up front and everybody sees that what's in it for them, it's a lot more about psychology and human nature than it is about contracts because a lot of the time it's, it's relationship building and if people understand the back end and they understand profit, it's a lot easier to deal with it. So the boot camp in answer to your question, Michael, is to teach people that the mindset of joint ventures, to teach them the understanding of business, which a lot of business people unfortunately don't have. You know, there's a lot of business people that don't know what their acquisition cost is, they don't know what their marginal net worth is. They really flying in the dark and they're working so hard to stay riding that tiger and just coping and putting out fires. They don't stand back and, as Michael Gerber says, you know, work on the business instead of in. You talk about human nature, but isn't it human nature? And I'm just playing the devil's advocate. Partnerships, most of them end in divorce, whether it's marriage or business partnerships. It's just human nature. They don't last. So how long can we expect a joint venture to last before human nature takes over and people are getting greedy? You just gave the example of the guy who wanted to change your deal from gross to net. I mean, this has got to be a reality, and how would you prepare someone who's setting up joint ventures to prevent this or to protect themselves from it? Or would you just tell them to expect not every deal is going to go smoothly and they're only going to last for a certain amount of time. And you're right. Human nature, people get greedy. Not everybody does, but, but a lot of people do. And, you know, I met with Paul J. Meyer, and he said to me, 65% of the things that I tried in business failed, but the 35% made me wealthy. But the 35% that worked. 
And given that there's no money or no risk involved, if when somebody cuts you out of a deal or doesn't pay you, you've got an option. You can try and sue him and you get bitter and twisted. Uh, you're probably not going to get your money back. You're probably going to lose more money. Or you can shake the dust from your shoes, move on, and start making money somewhere else because essentially you haven't lost anything. And now you know that you don't want to deal with that guy anymore. So we're very realistic about business, and, and as you say, human nature, there are people that are going to rip you off. There's another side to that that a lot of people miss, and that's called branding. But um, branding is very important. And I said to a guy the other day, he said to me, well, how do you know that people won't download your software and send it free of charge to their friends or copy your seat? I said, well, people do that. And you know what? It's great branding for me because it's advertising me. And my website is going out there. My name is going out. Have a look at me on Google, and you'll see that it's working. It's how you look at it, and it's how you set it up. So if you set it up that you really have nothing to lose and everything to gain, and worst-case scenario is you're going to make something, I think that's a mature way to look at business. Not every relationship is going to work, and we know that. But if you go in realistic and thinking, well, you know what, if this works out, it's just great. If it doesn't, I've learned something, I move on. That's a good attitude to have. And then you also know that you'll never deal with that person again, and you're going to keep your friends from dealing with them as well. Do you set time limits on the joint venture relationship in perpetuity, or as long as we're doing the deal, or will you make it for five years or ten years? I mean, or is it all different? I try to do them in perpetuity because I think people that understand, you know, the longer we're working together, the more stuff we can do. And it's business I wouldn't have had. And I'm building relationship with somebody that is getting a check from me every month. So I've got top of mind with them and with their database, and I can always go back to them and build on that relationship instead of trying to start a new one. I think that's very important. It's again, it comes back to the mindset. You know, do you want long-term relationships that you can continually build on and as a good foundation to future business and expansion? Because then you've got exponential growth and leverage. As my database grows, people that have been involved with me for a long time are continually continuing to benefit from it because I trust them and like them more than somebody I just met two days ago. I think the ideal of a joint venture is to understand a very important thing, and that is that we don't have money problems, we've got thinking problems. And the thinking problem that we have is industrial age conditioning that you've got to work hard, you've got to work long hours, you've got to risk a lot in order to make money. And the reality is that these days, everything that you need, every resource that you could possibly want is already available through somebody else. Other people's money, other people's time, access, databases, reputation, everything. And a good example of that is when we came to Canada eight years ago, I was trained primarily in the States and I, I lived in South Africa my whole life. I got here at the age of 45, eight years ago, I'm 53 now. And we've never been in Canada before. And coming to the Canadian West Coast is a bit of a shock from a business perspective because it's very slow, very laid back compared to East Coast, even in the States, I think the West Coast tends to be a little slower than the East Coast. So we couldn't even rent an apartment. When I wanted to rent an apartment, the woman said to me, well, you've got no reputation, you've got no credit record, we can't rent you an apartment. And I said, well, I'll pay the rent two years in advance in cash. She said, no, that's illegal, you can't do that. So I had to get the head of the U.S. Peace Corps from Southern Africa, who was a friend of mine in South Africa, to fax the agent in Vancouver, who then faxed the owner in Hong Kong, to give me permission to rent her apartment. Coming from having television in South Africa and writing books, coming here to have absolutely no reputation, no connection. So all we did was we went to the Surrey Chamber of Commerce, 1,800 members, and we said, I will go in every week. I will do a one-hour free seminar for your members every week for three months at no cost to you. They advertised that to 1,800 members in the newspapers, 
they set up seminars for me to do with the Royal Bank, which is the biggest bank in Canada, with colleges, and all of that was paid for by the Chamber of Commerce, by the bank, by the uh, colleges. I did seminars. I had 250 people showing up. No cost or risk to me. And borrowing the reputation and credibility of the banks, the Chamber of Commerce, and everybody else. Well, within, four, I think, four months of getting here, I was living off my business, and we didn't work for the two months, first two months. So all we did was leverage existing resources, existing databases, existing distribution, and the reputation. And within two months of working the business, we were living off the business. My accountant couldn't believe it. So a lot of accountants don't understand business very well. They're selling time. For a newbie coming in, everything you need is already available. You don't need to go out and spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on some business or franchise. You can if you like, but there's an easier and risk-free way of doing that. And when you go along to a networking group where people are selling their products or service, so they're very limited in the scope or their potential, I go into a group of 20 people. I just want to know what they want. Who can I connect them with? And if the guy's looking to buy a house, I can connect them with a realtor and get up to 50% of a commission. So I don't need to be a realtor to sell houses. What were you doing in South Africa with TVs and writing books? What were you writing books on? I was doing exactly the same thing. I was teaching businesses how to make money using joint ventures. And so we did well there because we were known. I'd lived there all my life and I'd done a lot of things. But when you come to a new country, you know, you're absolutely unknown. And, and that doesn't count. What you did in, in another country is not being important in a new country often. And that's understandable. Yeah, what brought you over here? First of all, South Africa is a very dangerous country now, and a lot of people are leaving, those that can are leaving. But more importantly, there's massive potential in North America, and uh, living here, you have access worldwide. My goal is to reach millions of people with a message that you can use joint ventures to restore your dignity financially, your self-respect. Seniors that don't know what to do anymore, that are not living on their income, kids coming out of school, employees that are getting laid off, business people that are in trouble, and then people that just want to improve their lifestyle and have a better lifestyle and not be locked in a shop all day or sitting behind a desk, can use this. And there's an abundance mentality about joint ventures. There's enough for everybody, and we can all benefit. Well, you've got a lot of skill, and it sounds like you're a pretty savvy business guy, but what about for the new guy saying, well, you know, that's all good for you, and, and you've been doing this for 20 years. Is this really doable for an average Joe who's been working a job his whole life? Can I do this? How much time is it going to take, and can I do this? Now, that's a good question, Michael, and that's what most people ask. Us. We say, first of all, just so you know, your background, your education, your age, uh, where you're coming from, where you are, that is unimportant. Joint venture is not about selling, and that's good news. You don't have to be a salesperson. It's really about understanding. And you know, when you get those stereograms that you, you look at and it looks like gobbledygook, you can't really make a lot of squares and, and dots. But when you stare at it for a long time, that the 3D image emerges, and, and you get to see the links. And that's what JVs is about. It's about understanding that if you can help somebody to get what they want, you can get paid for it. So if you really like a doctor, if a doctor called me up and said, hey, Robin, i got a special on hip replacements this week, you know, that, that wouldn't be smart. But what happens is I go in, I tell him i got a sore knee, he examines me, and then he says, look, you, you know, you're 53 years old, you're getting flat feet, you need orthotics in your shoes, go and get some. I thank him profusely, I buy the orthotics, put them in my shoes, my knee's fine, I'm happy. He solved my problem, and he got paid for doing that. And so a good joint venture broker is really helping people to find the solutions. He's building a bridge between where they are and where they want to be 
then standing on that bridge like a toll gate and collecting. What we tell people is that people don't care where you're coming from or what your education is if you're solving that problem. If you're bringing them new business that they wouldn't have had, they're happy to pay for that because that gives them an unlimited marketing budget. It's actually easier in many cases for people that have never been in business to do joint ventures than it is for somebody that's been so conditioned for years and years and years in a business that is really locked in and attached to what he's doing. His whole identity is tied up in being a financial planner or a realtor or whatever it is that he's doing right now. Can we do a couple of stories? Can you give me some case studies of some of your students and just walk me through some case studies maybe that you've done that you want to share? But what happened to me was I was training with head sell-offs. I could show them how to double their sales in two months using joint ventures or double their income in two months using joint ventures and their profits. So I had four salons, each one was paying me $1,000 a month, and it took me probably nine months to get that business in that profit center. One day I was giving a talk at Autcoiffer, which is a big group of hairdressers, and Maxim Kroc walked up from the back. He said to me, he is the owner of the Redken product for that country, Redken hair product. And he said, look, what you want, Robin, is to get to train more salons. And what we want is to get our, our product into more salons. You're the best trainer around. This is the deal we want. If you agree to only train salons that use our product, we will promote you. That's what the deal was. So I thought, well, what have I got to lose? i got four salons. They're all using Redken. You know, it sounds good to me. So in four days, Maxim got his sales team to go out to all their clients and all their prospects, and they started selling me. And in four days, I went from 4000 a month to 20000 a month. Now, that would have taken me four years on my own. It took me four days as a joint venture. Maxim was happy because he got his product into a lot more salons. I was happy because I got more business, and then I started training other businesses for him. I did, then I duplicated that with Weller and Goldwell. It's also hair product companies, and we, we duplicated that system. Were you holding uh, trainings in one location and the salon owners would come to it? I did that, and I went into salons and trained their employees. Can you give me a couple tips, some of your best tips for a salon on how to grow that business using a joint venture? Well, one of the things is that they don't realize, first of all, obviously they want to sell them more products, sell them more services, get them to come back more often. That's a given, and that's what we taught them to do. But more importantly than that, we showed them that when a lady comes in to have her hair done, what else does she need? You know, she wants to have her nails done. She wants to go for a massage. She wants to go to a spa. She wants to buy clothes. She wants jewelry. And what we did was we set up joint ventures with 20 other businesses. They would give us gift certificates for samples, for free consultations, free saunas, free spas, free yoga class, free dog walking, if you're a dog, and all these different gift certificates and samples. And we would gift our clients in the salon with these samples, and any resulting business would bring us 20% off the top back into that salon. So they would develop 20 streams of incoming business, residual passive income, into their business in addition to what they're already doing. And they differentiated themselves for their competition because they could literally say, you know, come and have your hair done here. We give you a free haircut five rounds. And then they'd turn that into time. But they could also say, we'll give you coupons or brochures worth $500. And you would teach the salon owners how to set this up and how to organize it and collect and all that. Exactly. And it worked pretty well? Well, exceptionally well. They were all doubling their, their income very quickly, their profit. But they were making money out of other people's businesses. And once they started to understand that, and they started to really take it to the next level. They started becoming real business people. 
And of course, we, we trained the hairdressers how to sell, how to build relationships, how to ensure that that customer is going to love them and come back. All that normal training that you would do in terms of sales and relationship and personality styles and everything else. But here's the key to that relationship. Once that was understood, I had another fellow that I knew, and he wanted to get into joint ventures. And I said to him, well, imagine if you'd known me and you'd known Redcap. You could have come to me and said, Robin, if I bring you new business, which you wouldn't have had, would you pay me 20% off the top every month? And I would have said, sure. You know, 80% of something is better than 100% of nothing. So I would have done that. And then he could have gone to Redcap and said, if I could put a deal together to get more products into more sellers, would you give me 5% of your growth every month ongoing? Ken probably would have agreed to that. Um, just on my side, that would have made it $3,200 a month. Oh, your Redkin deal with the uh, distributor for Canada, did you do a contract on that? That was actually for South Africa. It wasn't for Canada. We did that on a handshake. The man is a, is a billionaire. Having a contract with a billionaire, frankly, in the real world, what am I going to do? Sue him? You know? <laughs> and as a result of that, I got a lot of business with these other companies. We did that with Carlton Hair International down in Orange County, close to where you are. You know, we did a lot of stuff, and it was always about joint venture. Always no money, no risk. So this fellow that I explained, you know, you could have made money from the American. He went out to another company and duplicated that and made himself tens of thousands of dollars literally for putting a deal together. Wonderful to see that because all he was doing is just helping other people to get what they want. Red can get their product in salons, Robin gets more uh, salons to train it. Let's do another story, either one of your members or yourself, another exciting joint venture that was put together. Well, in one of the seminars that I did here in Vancouver, we had a jewelry shop from New Westminster, and they came along and they said, what can we do to increase sales? And I said, well, you're going to leverage existing resources. A lot of businesses advertise, and sometimes too much, and then they go out of business. But in that process of advertising, what they've done They've put their name out there with their telephone number, and mm -hmm. people might still be calling that number. In a nutshell, they went back four years in telephone books and had their secretary start calling all the jewelry shops in their area that they could find in, in old telephone books. That went out of business. That went out of business. And then they found one of them that was not a jewelry shop anymore that moved away, and there was a Mrs. Smith or whatever, and she was living in a high-rise apartment getting calls for jewelry on a regular basis. So they got that telephone number or they got calls relayed or whatever they did, but they got those leads coming to them and they doubled their profit. That is brilliant. I like that. And anybody can do that. And here, Michael, here's a good thing. Now, you're not going to do that with pizzas, but with jewelry, with anything, high margin profit. Um, what you could do is you could go through the telephone book, find jewelry shops, send that to another jewelry shop, triangulate the deal if you like, and then get paid on all the resulting business. You don't even have to have a jewelry shop to do that. You can do that in multiple businesses. You know, that's the mindset. That's the linking. And that's what we teach people to do. Did they only find one number? They only found one, and that was good enough to double their sales. Did they take over the number, or did they just have the lady refer them? You know, I don't know, Michael. I think they took over the number, or, you know, they had that permanently forwarded to them, and then they just gave her another number. But you could probably do that online with domains that have gone out of business. There are people that are doing that right now, and uh, you can book a domain as well. Right? Somebody else has got it, they don't renew it, you get it. But with domains you can do that, with telephone numbers, all sorts of businesses that are going out of business, you know, people that are going bankrupt. Well, they've got unfulfilled orders, they've got trained employees, they've got a database, they've got all sorts of things. A good example, this guy was a very successful dentist. He was new. He'd been in business, he'd 
changed his business. He came back into dentistry. He was in Surrey, B.C., which is very close to the, to the border, very close to Seattle. And uh, he wanted to get into the American market for two reasons. Number one, the Americans would save up to 40% on their dental costs, and their insurance would pay for it. Secondly, the Americans have got more money to spend. They've got more disposable income than Canadians. He does implants and high-end dentistry, and he wanted to get into the American market. So he approached so-called marketing consultants in Seattle, who said to him, well, I can get you into the Seattle market for $120,000, but there was no guarantees, obviously. And $120,000 might sound like a lot, but you, you do implants on one person, could be 40000 So he approached me and he said, what can you do for us? So this is what we did. We found a laser eye business. They were doing laser eye surgery in Canada for Americans. Offices here, offices there. They were overextended. They were going out of business because they were overextended. They were undercapitalized, overextended. Cash flow was tight. So we paid them $10,000 to direct mail their entire database with an offer for them introducing this dentist in science. And these were Americans that were spending money on eye surgery in Canada. So we're already, that was a good psychographic demographic model. They were already used to coming to Canada, they were used to the concept, they understood that they would save a lot of money and get good service. That business did so well from that $10,000 that they were booked up six to seven months ahead. Then they found a talk show host in Seattle. I didn't do this, they did this. They found a talk show host in Seattle that wanted dental work done they did all his dental work, and in response, he promoted them like an advertorial, you know, telling the people on his radio show, you know, these guys are just great. I saved this money. They did this fantastic job. They booked me into a hotel free, and that just boosted their business all over again. And this client, actually, they've become friends with us. He's going to study in Harvard now for three years. They're moving down to Boston. But wonderful people uh, that did very, very well leveraging existing resources. They read Paddy Lund's book. You're probably familiar with that, Dentist of Australia. I got that for them. They read that. And they just applied these simple joint venture principles and added massive value, differentiated themselves in the market, and they did very well. No, that's great. I'll send a little example on eBay. If you have a search term for something entered on eBay, whenever there's an auction with that search term, it'll come directly to your email address. One of my search terms is going out of business. And so every time there's an eBay auction, it comes to me. I get to look at the eBay auctions, the new listings of businesses that have the search term going out of business. Because obviously, if you've got a business going out of business, you want potentially the names. Now, I just did this the last couple months. I'm not getting a ton of stuff, but I did get in Nashville, Tennessee, a video rental store that was going out of business. And I emailed her through eBay, and I said, how many names do you have on your customer list? And she had about 5,000 names, all in email, but never followed up with her. But the point is, she was going out of business, and she had all those names. She had a good relationship with her customers, but that list was potentially there to just be taken to be bought for very inexpensively. She wasn't going to use it anymore. And these assets are all over the place. So it just reminded me of that. So anyone listening, they can go to eBay, type in going out of business, and potentially find mailing lists that are basically going to die. And you can take over that and borrow on the relationship and all the goodwill that that company had while they were in business. But that's brilliant. That's fantastic. Let's do another story. What else can you think of? Well, one of the things that happened was there's a guy on the radio, Joe Saber, on the you how to get on the radio. Well, I had a guy in South Africa that got me onto radio, and it was not syndicated, but I got a lot of leverage and a lot of mileage out of that. And he made money on everything that came out of any radio show that I did. I was talking to one of our members up in Edmonton, Alberta, the other day, and she said, well, if I get Joe Saber's 
and it's, it's a good program. It's $99 US, and I get you onto radio. Would you do that? You know, would you pay me on all the resulting business that you got on any radio show? I said, sure. And she said she's going to do it. Well, you know what? Any number of people can do that for any number of speakers because if you get a speaker to speak anywhere and you get paid on all the resulting business, you can literally do that from a telephone. All you're doing is offering speakers to give free talks at Chambers of Commerce or whatever it is, which could result in keynote addresses and all sorts of other business, and get paid for that without having to do the speaking or meeting people or selling anything. You're just saying, if you're looking for a speaker, call me. Another fellow that we met, he'd been downsized in his job. He wasn't even a good musician. He was a relatively good musician, but he knew a lot of good musicians. And we said to him, well, why don't you become an agent? So he signed up 20 good musicians, and he would go to hotels and restaurants, and he would give them his card and introduce himself as the agent for musicians. And he would take 30% of everything those musicians earned. He ended up with a stable of 100 musicians that were basically paying in 30% of all the work they got. And they were happy because he was honest and he was fair and he got them good gigs. And this was business they wouldn't have had. All he did was he walked door to door, you know, giving out his card, introducing himself, and then he got a website and built himself up. But he did very well doing that. This is the end of part one on joint ventures. Please continue to part two.